Hey there, folks. Welcome to episode 54 of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. My name's Rob Woods, and this is the show for anyone who works in fundraising and who wants ideas for how to raise more money, enjoy their job, and make a bigger difference, especially during the pandemic. And if you work in major donor fundraising, I hope you're going to find today's episode really helpful because it's again with the brilliant Louise Morris of Summit Fundraising. Louise is also one of our fabulous coaches on the Major Gifts Mastery Programme. A few weeks ago, Louise and I created a new learning bundle for the Bright Spot Members Club, all about how to develop better, more respectful and deeper relationships with major donors during these troubled times. In this middle section from that full session, we explore why it's so important to create opportunities for your supporters to feel connected and ideas to help you do this sometimes difficult thing in practice. Another thing I think that's interesting is in order to fit new things in, the trouble with these podcasts and old books, and is there's always <laughs> new things to do. Well, it won't, all these new good ideas won't never fit in unless you get rid of something. So I love the pragmatism of you saying maybe for many of us who are keep trying to do things more, do them better, maybe the most important thing is to change your belief about how much time or how well you do some other things it's especially internal focused ones again that is harder remembering my own career early in your career when you might not yet have uh, loads of confidence about your ability to do your job or whether your manager is happy that you're doing a good job i know that's harder we can feel under pressure internally to impress all the time but one of the biggest shifts for me is uh, interviewing a, a legendary fundraiser years ago at the children's charity where I worked and she honestly raised more money or as much money as anyone else as I was aware of in that organization and it was so clear when I interviewed her about how she spent her time she spent much more time do doing external focused tasks tasks talking to donors or doing the pause to reflect to think about how could I help this donor she just set up her day and I saw it in her schedule she showed me her schedule to spend more time doing that now in order to still have some semblance of work-life balance it meant she had to be a bit more strict with herself and even others on what she gave her time to internally now, I would hate if people listening to the, this podcast now go out and do a shoddy job on an internal report and then blame you and I, Louise. That would be a shame, and that's not what we mean. But um, sometimes it's just a shift of just what you said. Before you start a task that is is not really a high leverage one in terms of your productivity, but it's it just has to get done, getting clarity on that and setting a timer and maybe asking yourself the question, what would it look like if this were easy? How could I just get it done rather than the A star version of it? And why? Not because we're lazy, not because you don't care, but because for this task, it will be good enough. And the massive prize then is more thinking time to move on these important relationships. Absolutely. And, you know, our brains are really sneaky. Some of this stuff with major donor relationships, it's not straightforward. It's not simple. 
or you know everybody would be going and getting six-figure gifts overnight really easily but writing a report feels quite straightforward so you know I think kind of um and I've been really guilty of this I think um you often talk about eating the frog rob and maybe doing that thinking or doing that um piece of work that is trickier that we dread a little bit more earlier in the day (laughs) so we don't delay it because as fundraisers we can really fill our roles with you know you have flexibility in a fundraising role and that's one thing I never really appreciated you have your job descriptions but how you spend your week is you actually have far you know some meetings that will be deemed essential by your managers how you actually spend your week you have quite a lot of control over and it's fascinating to hear that schedule that you spoke about and how somebody had deliberately kind of put time in. So I think it's also recognizing that sometimes our minds don't want us to do this, that they, they, they'd like us to spend an extra hour on the report because it's what we're used to. Now that might not even be conscious, but it might be what's going on um, kind of subconsciously. And that's really normal. And I did that a lot in my career and I work with a lot of fundraisers that do and I think if we can kind of, yeah, kind of get out, out of our comfort zone with that, it helps a lot on the external piece. Yes. And many of our listeners and viewers will have heard this before, but having the discipline to choose to do what you're saying, which is to do these important things which add up to a bigger difference when your brain is fresher and the research shows that for most of us, that is in the morning for instance, between 8.30 and 11.30, and all too easily, unless we're conscious of it, that's the point at which we lose an hour just going through some emails when your brain is freshest and bravest and at its most creative to give yourself 20 or 30 minutes thinking time to solve the difficult thing. That's one thing I've observed that high achievers in this area do. And my other thing that I was taught to do years ago is before I go on the bike ride or on the stroll around the block or whatever, to quite deliberately write down in my notebook the question I would like an answer to, the question that is stumping me, and to ask it as if I expect for there to be an answer. And that was different from before I used to go for a walk. And I said, yeah, well, I know what the problem is. Well, since asking it in question form, writing it out in my notebook, I found that my subconscious, my other than conscious brain, became so much more likely to work on what I really wanted it to work on than if I didn't quite deliberately, so to speak, type the right question into my neck top computer. So um, that's the last tip that I have found helps me. You know, The value of journaling generally is a whole nother topic, which let's not go into. But uh, so far, Louise, as I understand it, we've talked about why quite deliberately choosing certain language and a certain model to approach valuable things in the right order to build relationships to to help a philanthropist potentially choose to give to a cause they care about. We've talked about that. We've talked about how you found your five-step model uh, does help people do these things in practice. And I think so far we talked about curiosity and then pausing to calmly think things through. I think you said that the next step was to connect. Um, Tell me a tiny bit more about that one uh, and then a a couple of tactics or an example to bring it to life for for what you mean. So 
Um, I talked a little bit earlier about Dr. Jen Chang's work, and I think the most successful major donor fundraisers I work with, they do truly believe that giving is good for people, that giving is a really wonderful thing, and that actually as fundraisers, we've got quite a privilege actually and quite a unique role doing that. And I think if kind of coronavirus has shown anything, it's really shown that people want to help. There were donor interviews done um, and a lot of research done early on in the pandemic with philanthropists wanting to help and not being asked, feeling guilty, knowing that they're in a privileged position. And I think when you believe that and you truly believe it, you can then go on to a next level, which is how are you going to connect somebody to what you're doing? And the interesting thing for me with connecting is that most major donors, when they give their large gift, it's their third, fourth or fifth or sixth gift to the organization. So they are probably already a supporter, already involved in some way. So sometimes we think, oh, they're on our radar now. They, being a person who actually knows quite a bit about your organization, will suddenly start doing X, Y, or Z. But one of the things you can really start doing before, they don't have to have given a large gift. Is If they've given before, is connecting them to how they're helping and how they're making a difference. And I know, you know, Brightspot um, and Rob, you do a lot of amazing training on this. Stories are just incredibly helpful. Um, they, I think with some philanthropists, if you've done your curious piece right, and if you've really thought about what might appeal to them, you'll have an understanding of that balance of facts and figures and what they're interested in. But that should, even if somebody, even if a philanthropist has spoken to you in a meeting about, well, it's really about the return on investment for me. And I really want to know the social good that's done. And, you know, when I invest in businesses, I want to know all those facts and figures. Even then, you still need stories because the stories are the things that they will remember. And um, I think sometimes I only see some of this process starting when somebody's made a large gift. And we really need to start connecting to donors earlier. So, for example, a hospice I've been working with, they we identified that a couple had been giving. He was a lord for quite a few years, and they had a lot of wealth to give a six-figure gift. And they'd been kind of hidden, which is fine, and they'd been thanked now and then. The CEO, we drafted something for her to send to ask for a meeting and then to follow up with a call. She didn't even have to follow up with a call. <laughs> they came back straight away and said, we'd love to meet with you. So the premise of that was, I've noticed you've been given for the last five years. You know, you've you've given, you've raised this much in total. This is what it's enabled the charity to do. This is amazing. Would you like to come and have a chat? Because I'd love to thank you in person and find out a little bit more about, you know, why you're giving and what it means to you. And they just accepted and got a meeting. and. Connecting is not just about connecting to the people that the charity is helping or the planet, if it's an environmental charity or to animals, if you're an animal charity, it's actually thinking about other ways to deepen the relationship between that donor and your organization. And there's a lot of evidence that the more links people have and the deeper their identity is with your organization, the more they're going to give, the happier they're going to be. And so how else can you connect people? Well, you can connect people to other donors. And some charities do this amazingly well through giving clubs. Um, some charities have a giving club in name and it doesn't really do much in practice. But actually having that sense of together, we are a group who with the charity 
is changing the world is really powerful. It's not just them and you as a charity. It's them in this group, this in-group, this, this group of people who are working together. And again, you know, there's some really good examples in, in general fundraising, not just in major donor relationships of this. But I think because major donor relationships is one-on-one, we've got a really good opportunity to think quite specifically about people and what's important to them. So are they a grandparent? Are they, do they see themselves as an outstanding member of the community? Is that what's important to them? Do they see themselves as a philanthropist or actually do they hate that term? Do they see themselves as that's just, is just what I should do. All of these different identities, if we can find out about people, you can then find the ways to connect that are going to appeal to them. So you can start introducing people to other people at events. So for example, if they're a grandparent and their child, their grandchildren are a key reason they're giving to a children's charity, you can introduce them to another donor who's got a really similar motivation. You can start to be very subtle and actually quite well thought out about how you're going to connect them. And then of course, connecting them to your organization. I say this last because um, if you can imagine that a charity is in the middle, and of a line and on the far one side of a line you've got a philanthropist and on the far other side of the line you've got the difference they want to make the reason they're giving to change the world to find a cure for cancer to you know stop global warming and create the planet for the future whatever that is you can pretty much take away the charity in the middle you we as charities are a very small part of doing that and i think some that's not to disrespect any work charities doing the third sector is wonderful but in a philanthropist mind they're interested in the cause and there is a fascinating book um next generation impact and the more reading i'm doing on younger philanthropists in their 20s 30s and 40s a lot of them are bypassing charities altogether they're going straight to the cause and if we want to be relevant and really, really relevant. Yes, we do want good relationships with our major donors, but we have to connect them straight to that cause at the other end and to the difference they're making. And there are so many creative ways that charities do this. I know through the Mastery Programme, we've talked about this, Rob, and you've done it and you've talked about it in other podcasts. So lovely kind of WhatsApp videos straight from maybe some of the projects or the services, videos that can be kind of sent straight across to donors. Um, you want to bring them fulfillment and to bring them joy and that they don't get anywhere else. They don't necessarily get it from their work life. They don't necessarily get it from their family life. And that's where the uniqueness comes in. So yeah, kind of a big topic. <laughs> I've, been, I've rambled a little bit there, but for me, this is more than just an event invitation. This is putting some of that thought and what you know into thinking of the different ways you can connect and build relationships with your donors, not just to them and the charity, but to the people that you're helping and also to other donors and how you can create those groups that if they're done well, will last a lifetime. Yes. And a couple of things, it came across really strongly to me when I interviewed Paul from Manchester Camerata for the podcast his extra curiosity about finding real examples and, and above all, just having the confidence to authentically share those real examples to do with the difference that the orchestra was making to music lovers who cared about his cause, the, the gathering of those and proactively sharing just really added to the conversations he was having. He was enjoying those conversations more and more. So that also in turn helped 
more and more momentum to, to seek out more people to, to chat to. So there are any one of these tactics we decide to get better at often has these knock-on yeah, it really does. And that's a fascinating example, actually. He's doing such an amazing job and really kind of embraced the personal approach. And what was interesting with that event is it wasn't just another online event. He really understood that actually what donors were missing in lockdown was live music. They were all supporting and some of them hadn't given a major gift, but supporting at a lower level. They were supporting this music charity, regional music charity, Manchester Camerata. And then all of a sudden, maybe they'd been seeing, you know, two concerts a week or maybe going to see live music. They had nothing. And he really understood that about them. It wasn't even to do with their giving and their identities and, and what music meant to them. And he put this amazing online event on where they got to listen to live music together. So it's an amazing, really quite small, but incredibly personal event for people that have been doing, you know, their own grieving in various ways as, as, as a lot of people have been doing through coronavirus and then coming together with the charity, I thought was just absolutely genius that, you know, and, and that took some pausing and reflection. That was not in the second week of lockdown. Oh, we'll just do an online event and invite them to a chat with the CEO. Sometimes that works, but to really make the deeper connections, it takes that thought to really understand them and how you can kind of add to those relationships. Hey, it's Rob, and I just want to jump in really quickly, just in case you're a corporate fundraiser or a trusts or a major donor fundraiser, to let you know that we've just launched new dates for our mastery programs in major gifts and in corporate partnerships fundraising. We've found that these in-depth programs, which include masterclasses and individual coaching and access to all of the courses and support in the Brightspot Members Club, are proving more helpful than ever to fundraisers during the pandemic. In fact, if you were at our virtual breakfast clubs last year, you may remember one wonderful fundraiser named Leanne, who attended our corporate mastery program, share how she used things she learned in that program to raise four large gifts and partnerships, totaling more than £90,000 as the pandemic unfolded, which made a huge difference to her small international literacy charity. So if you're curious about how the corporate mastery program or the major gifts mastery program would help you to improve high value fundraising results, you can find out more by visiting our website, which is brightspotfundraising.co.uk and then clicking on the services section to find out more about either the corporate one or the major gifts mastery program. For now though, back to my conversation with Louise as she explains another activity that we've found is so important for relationship fundraisers at the moment. And I think the other tactic, of course, when connecting is to pick up the phone. And it's not the easiest thing, but we've talked about this a lot, Rob. The easiest thing, particularly this year of all years, is to kind of just send an email out. But the charities who've picked up the phone have made more connections and they've connected at a time of very high vulnerability for both sides, for the philanthropist. And when people are being more open and, you know, I've all of the fundraisers I've spoken to who've made more calls have been surprised. They've been speaking to me in sessions, nearly falling off their seats going, oh, they were, they were actually really pleased to hear from me. Or I was so surprised that they took my call. They haven't been taking my call for a couple of years. Now that is obviously not a hundred percent. It's not kind of realistic to expect that every donor would just pick up the phone to your call straight away and say, wonderful to hear from you. But, um, you know, there was a youth um, homeless charity I've been working with 
and you know some really high level major donors in the construction industry that have you know thanked for the call it's just been a call to check in and connect and said I'm so glad you know I'm so glad you picked up the phone today I'm so glad you spoke to me I've really wanted to know what's been going on with you you know donors care and so I think you know those those personal ways of connecting phone if you're going to do an online event make it personal just really think about who these people are like Paul did um and being yourself and this goes back to that kind of what we were talking about being curious but you know I've spoken to a CEO recently so I worried they're not going to want to talk to me and a lot of fundraisers say that as well and um, Lisa Greer I've mentioned her book she's a, a US philanthropist in her book Philanthropy Revolution talks about the lack of genuine conversations sometimes in the sector now it is based on America but I think there are learnings for us as well and that not being ourselves is more damaging than actually not having any conversation at all. And I think coronavirus this year is a gift in terms of having those open, vulnerable conversations and connecting. And it's not too late. It's absolutely fine to be picking up the phone to a donor and saying, you know, how's the last six months been for you? Or gosh, is it eight months? I think now, um, you know, haven't been in contact, but just wanted to check in and see how you were. Or, you know, I see you're up in a level three area. How is that? Well, how's that affected your business? You know, and just to see how they are. And it's a gift that this pandemic has given us to build relationships and connect more because through those connections, you will find out so much more about them, that curious. So it kind of is all linked to being curious with the connecting. And and if one was calling up to get some money, then I understand why one is especially nervous before having to make that call. And every good fibre in your body rightly makes you nervous because you don't want to be the taker. But, you know, um, Andy, when he was on the podcast, his mindset was coming through really clearly that that's not why he was calling those 40 or so trusts that had supported his his hospice charity through thick and thin he was calling as one human being to another because he cared and then of course that sometimes the conversation developed but when it didn't that was fine but he was connecting so louise thank you so much for all your time and sharing your wisdom if the listener is curious about finding out more of your ideas uh, or potentially seeking your help where could they go to find you they can go to summitfundraising.co.uk i'm also a rock climber hence summit fundraising and i send out free hints and tips um on there every fortnight so they can go and sign up if they'd like to get those and i'm on twitter at summit fundraise and on linkedin as well fantastic so louise thank you so much for all the frank discussion really simple clear ideas and advice um examples to bring it to life i I really appreciate you taking time to join us on the podcast i look forward to catching up with you soon but for now louise morris thank you and goodbye thanks rob so there you go i hope you found this discussion was helpful if you like the podcast please remember to subscribe today so that you can get access to all the other episodes that we've got coming up. As usual, I'll put a summary of the key ideas and a transcript of the interview on the blog and podcast section 
of brightspotfundraising.co.uk and as Louise mentioned, her website is summitfundraising.co.uk. As I say, today's episode is an excerpt from the full learning bundle on major donor fundraising that Louise and I put together a few weeks ago for our Brightspot Members Club. That mini course is just one of 40 training films available 24-7 on a wide range of topics that fundraisers can learn from. And every single week we do a live problem solving and coaching session for members with brilliant fundraising teachers like Louise, which we found are making a big difference to our members' ability to keep taking bold action to achieve fabulous results in spite of the chaos and fear that the pandemic is creating. If you're not yet a member, but you'd like lots more in-depth help and training, you can find out more or sign up to try it even for just a month at brightspotmembersclub.co.uk forward slash join. That's brightspotmembersclub.co.uk forward slash join. If you'd like to get in touch or share this episode on social media, we'd love to hear from you. We're both on LinkedIn and on Twitter, Louise is at Summit Fundraise and I am at Woods underscore Rob. Finally, thank you so much for listening today. And until the next time, I wish you the very best of luck with all your fundraising efforts. Mm -hmm.